Hello, I'm Stuart Chittenden, and this is Lives, a show about conversation, community, and the people that bring community to life. My guest today is Tofa Hansen, CEO of Centerpoint, an addiction recovery and mental health services provider. Our conversation today is being recorded by Zoom. Tova Hansen has been involved in the substance abuse and mental health field since 1975 as a volunteer, counselor, legal counsel, development director, board member, and CEO. Since 2000, Tova has served as the president and chief executive officer of Centerpoint, a behavioral health organization that provides crisis response, treatment, rehabilitation, and housing services for persons with co-occurring substance use and mental health disorders, with service locations in Lincoln and Omaha, Nebraska. Tofa is a member of the Nebraska Association of Behavioral Health Organizations, was a board member of the National Council for Behavioral Health from 2013 to 2016, and has been on the audit committee of the National Council Board since 2016. He has also co-authored a text on professional ethics, and has been an instructor for the professional ethics course for licensed alcohol and drug counselors since 1997. Tova has extensive involvement in the Lincoln community for the past 30 years and is married with four children and four grandchildren. Tova, welcome to the show. Thanks, Stuart. Appreciate it. Glad to be here. What are some of the, um, the, the issues that are sort of endemic in the community that you and your organization are, are tackling? Um, I'm interested in sort of how, you know, Centerpoint started and, and how it's moved forward. It was a small handful of people that really were committed to social action and uh, started the program in 1973. And we had uh, six people be, uh, that were served in 1973 and had 3,200 served this last year. So we've grown a little bit. And uh, uh, the issues have just become more uh, apparent uh, to society. That is, we've uh, begun to get them out of the dark corners and started to think more clearly about what the issues are. Uh, our motto is everyone knows someone with a substance use issue, a mental health issue, or often both. It is not a failing of character or will or uh, matters of that sort, but really is a, a illness that uh, is a documented brain disease that scientists have come to understand how uh, it uh, changed substances change the brain and how mental illness uh, is lodged in the brain and a function of, uh, um, you know, I call it wiring or juices, um, that um, people don't this is, they don't want, nobody wants to be addicted. Nobody wants to have a mental illness, but organs get sick, uh, kidneys and livers and skin and uh, all organs get sick. And our brain is no different. And our brain is so complex that to uh, have these kind of illnesses, it's important that we recognize it and that we deal with it just like all other illnesses. What we have seen over the years is an evolution in the industry of uh, how uh, this is looked at in the world. It, it really started out in the substance world uh, coming out of AA and the 12-step model. 
and which was really designed as, as sort of a recovery support model. But in the early 70s-ish, uh, it was kind of uh, converted, uh, if you will, to a treatment modality as well. But it really, really isn't a treatment modality. It really is a recovery model that should be woven in if people want to have that into a treatment plan. Uh, but Centerpoint really started uh, in the early 70s with a biopsychosocial model. So we were running contrary to the vast majority, the super majority of programs around the country by being biopsychosocial uh, because we wanted to look at the whole person and understand what their biology was saying, what the psychology of the, their experience and what their social upbringing was to help understand all that, to solve problems and help them put a plan together to move forward. And, and we knew very little about the science of addiction at that time. Um, it was, we were definitely cutting cross grain relative to the social norm and received a lot of flack for that. And, uh, and then later when we started to understand that many of the people that we were seeing also had co-occurring mental illness that wasn't getting served, we realized the importance of weaving that together. And so in the 80s, when we began to recognize that, we started early 80s, we started to reach out to psychiatrists and other people in the community to work with us on that and found that that failed over and over and uh, there wasn't a lot of enthusiasm about working with us on that. And then resolved uh, toward the latter part of the 80s that we needed to do this ourselves. And so we then uh, merged mental health and substance care together. So uh, when you sat down with a therapist, it was someone skilled in both uh, treatment of mental illnesses and substance use disorders. And so we could then begin to serve the whole person. And that, uh, again, cross grain, it was unheard of. Uh, you know, we were accused of diagnosing uh, just to get money uh, and, and that kind of thing. Uh, but it really turns out that what we started back then is state of the art in terms of what treatment is today. We have continued to expand on that by, uh, in fact, a, a really recent milestone for us is for probably since uh, around 2004, so 16 years, we have been trying to integrate or figure out ways to integrate physical health with mental health and substance so we really can serve the whole person. Uh, and just recently, we received a large grant from the federal government, uh, the uh, Substance Abuse Mental Health Service Administration, known as SAMHSA. Uh, we received a large grant from them to help us bring all that together and hired our first advanced practice registered nurse uh, uh, who focuses on primary care uh, to bring that primary care into our offices on a consistent basis and a full-time basis. And, uh, and so now, for the first time, we're really able to serve the whole person and help them with all the issues that uh, they experience as they're coming in our front door. 
you've mentioned whole person a few times and it feels like that's that's integral these co-occurring elements that you are trying to tackle for the whole person also seems to me to address something else that i i've read about on your website around housing instability it struck me that a, a large part of what you do uh, includes residency-based efforts. To what extent is housing instability or housing security an integral part of you treating the whole person or that concept of the whole person? So uh, Maslow taught all of us this. First thing you got to do is start with the basic needs, uh, roof over your head, food in your belly, and clothes on your back. And uh, what we're doing in healthcare is no different. If people are on the street, they can't get better. If they can't meet their most basic needs, they're never going to take the next step to really resolving some of the bigger challenges in their life. And uh, so we've uh, come to learn uh, that you have to really start at the first step, meet them where they are, begin to meet their most basic needs and help them take those steps forward, not in giant leaps and not, well, I'll serve you if you're, uh, if you're abstinent from alcohol or drugs, but if you're still using, you can't come to our program. Uh, that doesn't make any sense. They are addicted and uh, they, uh, they need the help to get to that point. And it isn't giant leaps, it's baby steps. Uh, but the part, about the integration is if someone has four flat tires when they come to the door, you need to fix all four tires. If you fix three, they're not going anywhere and you'll see them back in your shop. But if you can fix all four tires and teach them good tire care, then uh, the likelihood is that they'll be able to sustain a recovery plan for that much longer. And you need to uh, do all those tires at the same time. So that's where the integration and then the metaphor about whole person, whole car, whole health, that it's important to address all those things because our body, our uh, system, we are a system of systems. And so your liver function is its own intricate, delicate, hearty, at the same time, system, uh, but it's uh, also woven together with so many other pieces. If that liver starts to fail, your kidneys start to fail because they're trying to make up ground for what the liver function lost has meant to your body. Likewise, if your brain uh, gets sick, it impacts all the other systems. If you get physically ill, it impacts your brain. So we are a system of systems, and as such, we need to be addressed in that same way to help heal the primary things, but recognize the ancillary issues and help resolve those at the same time. So integration and whole health are the two words of future healthcare. I hope in 10 years that the doctor's office that you go to and the doctor's office I go to and the program that Centerpoint is in 10 years are all fully integrated whole health organizations. So they understand that these systems work together and they work in their organization to address those systems or have collaborative efforts to help address that 
so we pump up all four tires for all the people that walk in the door. And it's analogous in other arenas. I just heard a conversation at the national level about police just wanting to police. They're not social workers. They want to police. Well, and fortunately, that's not really voiced as strongly, at least in the Lincoln area, um, where I've talked to police officers and the police chief about that, that they see themselves in a new role where life is to have social work involved in it and has policing involved in it and has community relationships and all the things. And so people are recognizing in all sorts of ways the integration and whole health or whole approach uh, is important to doing their job well. mentioned the police and law enforcement isn't uh, necessarily there or is not certainly not necessarily well equipped to handle mental health disorder or substance abuse disorder, those aspects, but they are having to deal with them because society isn't. Do you have a view on this defund the police kind of catch-all movement? And what are you thinking is perhaps a way forward to extricate law enforcement and um, correctional facilities to extricate those and perhaps reorient society to where, you know, the skills and the resources should be placed. I think the outcomes from the death of George Floyd and the many others on the list, one of that should be that everybody needs to stop and reflect and uh, think of of who they are and what their role is in this. And, um, you know, I have been involved in equity and inclusion and social justice issues my whole life. My family, my parents were involved in that. I come by it honestly. They, they taught me to be uh, uh, a social activist in those ways. And uh, and yet I, I thought I have to stop and say, all I can say is what my experience is, what my view is coming from these eyes out outward. But what I really need to listen to is what is, and this is within my own organization, what is the experience of the staff, the other staff at Centerpoint in terms of how our policies are, what our inclusion's about, what our social justice is about, uh, and so to stop and listen is so important right now. So regardless of which police force it is, the 
uh, police need to stop and listen and understand how they're playing a part in uh, all of what's going on. And some may be better than others, but everybody needs to stop and listen. And then needs to take that information and tweak and modify to correct their course because we're, we're, we're living organisms, we're dynamic. And as much as we might have great intent, sometimes our execution comes out in a way that we didn't intend and we need to modify our execution. So I think for the ones that are doing a great job that still need to tweak or the police forces that need to really rethink the whole deal, um, you know, and there's gonna be a continuum, we need to address it in that way. The bigger issue I think with regard to the substance and mental health is We've driven this, you know, we can look not that far back and find state mental institutions, mental hospitals, where people were in chains and shackles in the hallway to keep them restrained. So you don't go too far back to get barbaric. Uh, Then we changed to drugs where they were just getting drugged to that point. In this industry, uh, society has, has really pushed it back and tried not to look at it. And now we're starting to recognize that it's such an important piece of who we are as individuals and then who we are as society. When you go to prisons and find that 80% of the people there have a substance issue and probably uh, 40 to 50% have mental health issues of various sorts, and I'm talking anxiety and depression, as well as more serious bipolar and schizophrenia and things like that, then that speaks for itself on what the issue is and that we need to address that. So if we did a lot better job on the front end by not having the stigma be so impactful, what we know is that 20% of adults will get care who need care, and then it'll take them 10 years to get there from the onset to the first incident of care, it'll take 10 years. And so we really put a heavy blanket on this to uh, make it go away. And we need to change that and really start early on in the years to help people understand it better and to intervene. My oldest daughter uh, has taught first grade and kindergarten and she could, she said, I can tell you the kids that are going to experience those problems later in life right now when they're five and six years old because their family setting is chaotic. They're already experiencing issues and so on. And so we've got to start early on in addressing some of this and do better as our society uh, to intervene in that. So let's, let's start closing prisons instead of opening new ones. Let's start uh, having our prisons be therapeutic so people get better while they're there. They don't get worse or sustain or learn new tricks, so to speak. And, and so there's a lot we can do in that way. And, you know, so one of our programs is receiving people who are coming out of prison to help them. In a, uh, we have a residential setting that they live and we work with them for about eight weeks, sometimes longer, 
to help them get started, uh, get some therapy, uh, start moving down that road in a successful way so they don't have that huge crash into the world as a labeled person, an ex-con, and meet all the stressors, especially if they have a propensity for substance use problems and those have never been addressed, if they have anxiety and depression, those have never been adequately addressed. We need to help them get to be more successful, but really what we need to do is go way upstream and start addressing that early so they never hit prison in the first place. You are listening to Lives. We'll be back after the break. I'm Stuart Chittenden, and this is Lives. My guest today is Tofa Hansen, CEO of Centerpoint, an addiction recovery and mental health services provider. Our conversation today is being recorded by Zoom. Is there a way that you could tell a story or combine some stories uh, to illustrate someone's journey from finding Centerpoint or being told to go to Centerpoint, and, and as they then journey through your place and your programs towards uh, a point where they become um, independent and self-sufficient in some way. Sure, we have you know we serve a lot of people, so we have uh, a lot of stories, but. Uh, I, I immediately go to one that is as dramatic as any other, and it's a guy who's a friend of mine. Uh, now, he's evolved through that relationship because as a young man, he experienced mental illness and then developed some substance issues and was kind of on the street and uh, got uh, connected to some bad guys uh, that were perpetrators. Uh, so he's he's the kind of guy that, is uh goes along with with people but he's not a perpetrator of bad acts uh but he is easily sucked into dominant folks that way when he was younger and so he got involved with a guy who was a bad actor and ended up killing somebody and having him uh my friend and another guy dispose of the body didn't commit the the murder but uh was involved in disposal uh, so he got charged with second-degree murder, and uh, he went to the Nebraska State Penitentiary. He, by the way, has told this story in uh, the media, and it's all out there. He uh, served 18 years in the penitentiary and, uh, in fact, uh, was uh, the trustee in the warden's office. Harold Clark uh, was the warden, was the trustee in Harold's office uh, doing 
paperwork and this, that, and the other thing, got out and uh, crashed into the world. No support structures, nothing to really help him. And when I first saw him, didn't meet him yet, but I saw him, I looked at him sitting in our lobby and I thought, that guy is going to die. No question. He was a mess. And uh, ultimately, uh, he got involved in our programs and spent about seven years in our uh, one program or another moving down the continuum uh, from residential that's intense and you're in there for uh, six months and things like that to outpatient and other programs like that. Right toward the tail end of him really being completely out of our services, uh, he was diagnosed with cancer. And that was really even more earth shattering than all the other things that had happened to him at that point. And it motivated him in a way where he really locked down on his health and recovery and then fought the cancer. And it's been easily 10 years uh, since he has been in full remission. So uh, uh, then he went back to school, uh, went to college, got his bachelor's degree, uh, he told me his great point, and for some reason it stuck in my brain because I was so proud of him. And uh, it was a 392 grade point average. I mean, so the guy did awesome in school, and but still has mental health issues and is still in recovery uh, from substances. So he then learned to sort of come out more around all that and be an advocate and go speak to different groups. Ultimately, he served on our board for a term and uh, really became an advocate inside our organization and the other organizations and worked uh, in the community and was really giving back, had a big heart. Our board felt so positive about who he was as a person uh, because he just lived all his moments. He looked at it every day as a great day and an opportunity to be healthy and to engage in the world. Uh, that we planted a tree out in front of our facility and put a plaque there honoring him for the way he lives life, because uh, it's an example to all of us. So he has really gone, well, I should tell you too, one of the great, great pieces of that story, two things. One is uh, he was pardoned for second degree murder, which is a rare event, uh, but because of who he is and because of how he lives his life, uh, this rare event occurred for him. And number two, when he graduated from Doan University, he, I was there, and he came across the stage. And by this time, a newspaper story was out telling his story. And so the student body knew about it. His name was called, and he started coming up the stairs. The student body stood and cheered for him. And uh, he came across the stage crying like a baby uh, to get his degree from the uh, president of the university and uh, a hug from the keynote speaker who just happened to be Harold Clark, the former warden of the penitentiary, who had embraced him in congratulations for really coming that full mile so uh, Sam Brown is his name. He's a marvelous person in so many ways and an example of how 
life can be delivered in a way to us where we reel from it as young people and bad stuff happens, but that recovery happens and positivity can come from that. Such a great story, but you've also been candid enough to say that you, you know life can be tough and that it's not always a great story. You told me at the beginning that Centerpoint serves a little over 3,000 people in a year, which we know is uh, you know, nowhere near the, the need that is out there in the community at large. Not to be a downer, but what are we going to do about it? It feels as if there is so much need and demand and so little in terms of, of the resources available. So um, what needs to happen next? What is, what is kind of like the next step here? Well, I think we do what we're doing right now is that we uh, get it out in the open more and really talk to people about what the reality of a substance use problem is and what the reality of mental health problems are, that they are treatable. Uh, One can find recovery through it. It doesn't have to be a a problem that ends your life, but it often is uh, because people aren't served. And as I said, a fraction of the people who have uh, issues are served in in our population. 20%, one in five people have a mental health disorder and 12 to 15% of the population have substance uh, disorders. And there's a ton of cost that goes into it in terms of what it costs our society. They call it cost burden from depression and anxiety and substance use. Uh, in fact, it's um, mental health and primarily depression, anxiety issues are the number one cost burden in our society, number one, more than any other. And so talking about this more to groups and the radio and positive experiences come from people being on boards, rock stars and movie stars and politicians and other people who are high profile to come on and talk about uh, Demi Lovato, who is uh, a great example of someone who's got a ton of talent and a ton of success in her life, but still uh, was rocked by mental illness and addiction and uh, really got a major setback recently, but has fought back and really built herself back into a place that she's trying to find that balance that we're all trying to find around health and well-being. So we should not mistake that we're all on the same path. We are all on the exact same path. Now, we don't all necessarily have a genetic condition of mental illness, uh, but we can sure acquire one. Trauma in, uh, often is results in uh, mental health problems. And, uh, you know, the example I've used of that all the time is child abuse, one, often results in that, or war. Uh, we see people go to war and come back with deep mental health problems, and uh, those are resolvable. But again, it's uh, one that often gets pushed back and not fully recognized or not fully uh, treated.
you mentioned dark corners earlier and you yeah. were referencing the, the stigma and part of what you were just explaining to me then was getting some of this conversation, these issues talked about in the public sphere, recognized, yeah. acknowledged, and, you know, have the sun shone on them so that they can be, uh, it seems less terrifying. It seems like a big mountain to climb. Where is this stigma coming from? It, it seems to be something that is um, a really high barrier to moving forward with, with what you're describing. Oh, it's, it's age old. I mean, you can go as far back in history as you possibly can, and you'll see the stigma around uh, not substance issues so much. It wasn't uh, quite in the history books as mental illness uh, and uh, lunacy and the whole origins of that word and the conditions, but it goes way, way back and just provided uh, so it was different if you were sick from the neck down than if you were sick from the neck up. There was something about that that scared people more, and, and yet uh, it could be uh, often within your own family, and people understood it, but yet still had the stigma around it. So uh, it, it's historic. It, it's almost part of our DNA of having a bias and a discriminatory view of that. But slowly, we're chipping away at it in ways that people are more willing to talk about it. But I'd ask all the listeners, if you had to say, I have a heart condition, I have diabetes, I have a kidney dysfunction, I have depression. Um, what are the different ways you feel when you say those different things? And are you more reticent to say, I have depression or I have anxiety than those other physical thought of as physical health uh, conditions. And uh, my experience is, yes, people are much more reluctant to talk about a mental health illness than any other illness. So we have to keep chipping away and people who with a voice like Demi Lovato and Robert Downey Jr. and uh, Betty Ford and Kitty Dukakis and who all had substance issues and had co-occurring mental health issues going on as well. Um, they all need to uh, talk about that. The rest of us need to listen and understand this is not what they wanted. This is not what they're trying to foist upon us. Uh, is it hard? Absolutely hard for not only the person going through it, but the people around them, just like other illness uh, can be hard in some ways as well for families and the individual, but, and, and so it takes a lot for people to get through this, but people do recover. And Stuart, I wish I knew the magic pill or the switch to flip to get people to understand this, but the, the time that will be better is the time when the NFL is wearing the color of our glove uh, in, in their game, just like they're wearing pink for breast cancer. But, you know, 20 years ago, you didn't even say breast on a radio show or uh, in, in any public forum. Uh, and yet now we're uh, NFL players are wearing pink shoes and pink gloves and uh, things like that to represent uh, an awareness and, and supporting intervention with breast cancers. Have you ever sort of hit a moment where you've thought, like, why am I doing this? <laughs> 
yeah, right when I came to work for Centerpoint, I thought, what am I doing? <laughs> I left law practice and I thought, I don't like law practice and I want to do what I, my heart seems to love. And I, you know, we weren't even a million dollar organization at that point. So I thought, what am I doing? And I had no clue. I said this to my wife yesterday, as a matter of fact, I, I didn't even begin to have the slightest idea of where Centerpoint would be today. And um, I just feel so blessed to be part of an organization with so many leaders and so many good thinkers and so many passionate people. Uh, it, it's remarkable to me every single day. But since I then got settled in my first uh, year or so of doing that, uh, I've never looked back and I've never wondered. And I've just been constantly amazed at what has developed. And over the years, then I've gotten a really large appreciation for the issues. And right now, um, some people look on it with dread and say, oh, my gosh, you know, the rates are awful and this and that and this and that. And I'm an optimist. I think sky's the limit. There is so much opportunity to grow here as an industry. We're really in our adolescence. You know, it, mental health has been going on forever, but only in the, like in the 80s and 90s did we really start to get some traction for on both substance and mental health sides to understanding what the illness is about and understanding ways to serve, to treat, to intervene in ways that were effective and help people get better, as we say, better, sooner, for longer. Uh, and so uh, the sky is the limit. There's so much possibility here. And there's uh, listening and, and evolving we all need to do. One of the things Centerpoint has done in the last year is refocus not on the illness, not on the negative piece of it. But when you walk in with issues like that, we ask, what are your strengths? What are your assets that will help you get to a place of health and well-being where we're all going? We all think about our health every day. We all think about having mental health and well-being. Everybody's on this same journey. Uh, the people that we're seeing at the door just have uh, a, a few setbacks some bigger bumps in the road, but they're going there too. They want the white picket fence and a healthy life and uh, to feel uh, well-being in their life. Uh, and so we're trying to focus on the positive. How can we develop not a treatment plan, which implies your illness, but a recovery plan, which implies your health and your well-being? How can we focus on that? And we changed our lexicon. So we say recovery instead of treatment. In fact, we uh, refer to the people that we serve as people we serve. <laughs> and so they're, they're individuals or a person in service or people in service, uh, but they're not a client and they're not a patient and they're not a widget. Uh, they are a person who's seeking a plan for recovery and health and well-being.
Well, in terms in terms of strengths, then, how were you shaped when you were younger? What was your childhood like, and what were the experiences you had that shaped who you are now, and and you know why you're motivated in this way, and and you have the strengths that you have. Great question, Stuart. Um, you know, I, I talked to a group of teachers one time, uh, retired teachers, and there are, I don't know, 20 of them or something, and I went through my spiel about what Center Point was about and so on, and I got done, and one woman around the table said, wow, this is like a ministry for you. <laughs> and I laughed, and I said, well, gosh, no one's ever said that to me, but it kind of is. You know, I, I'm sort of an agnostic on why these things happen for people, but what I know is for some reason that is alive in me. And uh, when I first started doing this in 1975 as a volunteer on the newly started drug crisis center, I walked in the door and knew within a few days that I knew how to do this. And it just lived inside of me. And ultimately, two years later, I became the first paid director of that place. And it, it's always... Uh, been alive and and part of that is my parents uh, were always social activists in the '60s and civil rights, LGBT movements, uh, end of life issues. They have been extremely active throughout my life, and so I experienced that over and over. And but it, it's more than just a layer that got put on top of me. Um, it, I really feel it inside and. I say to people sometimes when they ask me about that is, you know, I don't know where that comes from. But what I know is when I start, I sort of shut my brain off and it just comes rolling out of my heart. And uh, I, it's my honest experience. I, I just have it alive in me. And I don't with many other issues, even though intellectually, I think good things about those issues. I don't have, and I'm not in recovery. It's just a passion that I've had for a long, long time. And so then what I have done otherwise is my legal training. Uh, you know, I've said many times I would not be in this position had I not gone to law school because it helped me develop my thinking in a way that I could manage. So we're uh, right now, Centerpoint is about a $15.5 million organization with 240 staff and 37 different programs. And uh, so there's a fair amount to manage. And, and my legal training helped me to develop my brain in a way to do that in, uh, successfully. But also I've taken on uh, uh, issues and causes over time that have taught me lessons about doing those things that have helped shape my experience. But I have to say the thrust of what uh, I bring just is in my heart. You mentioned your parents. So do you remember not necessarily something as maybe overt and obvious as them taking you on a protest march, but you know, what showed up in your childhood perhaps, whether it's from your parents or just the context of your childhood life, your growing up, that perhaps seeded um, what you're describing as this calling from the heart? I grew up my first 12 years, 10 years in Omaha. My uh, father served on different groups, uh, Greater Omaha Community Action, and 
other groups and was really trying to be a part of moving forward with the 60s civil rights movement. My mother uh, served on a group back then called the Panel of American Women. I grew up in the Unitarian Church, and so my mother and a woman from the uh, synagogue and uh, an African-American woman, and Susie Buffett was one of the ones that she would often go lecture with, and they go in the community and talk about their experiences and really get out and try and stir the pot. And like I said, that 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 was kind of their MO. That was how they lived their life and how they shaped our values, I think, as children. And my two brothers and my parents went out to DC to be part of Gay Pride Day in the March. And uh, my parents were carrying a sign that said parents and friends of lesbians and gays. And they went down to the subway and the direction they were going, not many people were going, uh, but the uh, other side of the platform was fully stacked with people because they were all heading in the same direction. And one guy stepped forward on the platform, uh, seeing my parents there with my brothers and, and the guy stepped forward and started clapping for my parents. And, and they said the whole platform started clapping for them because they were supportive of that because so many people uh, who were lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender did not have family support. And so that meant so much to them and they all applauded. my parents ended their own lives. Uh, They were believed in a choice at the end of life and uh, both uh, did that with uh, all of us around, hands-on. It was a marvelous display of commitment, of life choice, of all manner of things, But, but that whole pioneer spirit and courage around social action and and commitment to social causes. And, And my mother said before she died that end-of-life choice was one of the last political frontiers that we all needed to face. Uh, Anyway, so I've lived in that culture my whole life, and uh, substance and mental health were never really part of it, Uh, but boy, that's somehow what woke up in my heart. Since 1975, I've been pulled to that in one way or another. Even after I got out of the crisis business and then went to law school and so on, I ended up serving on the center point board and I ended up continuing to do some volunteer work for the drug crisis line and and then ultimately got back on staff at uh, center point a really incredible journey uh, for me so rewarding i, I just uh, couldn't have ever ever hoped for such a wonderful career uh, that i've had and still having i just have more fun every day i say i tap dance my way to work every day because this job taps all the things that I love in the world and my talents. And I've got a fantastic team around me that really uh, makes up for my shortcomings and really carries the agency forward in very dramatic ways.
My guest today has been Topher Hansen, CEO of Centerpoint, an addiction recovery and mental health services provider. Topher, thank you so much for sharing this time with me. Sure, thanks for asking me. I love chatting with you. That's the end of this week's show. Our sound engineers are Mark McGaw and Dalimar McTizik. I'm your host and producer, Stuart Chittenden. Live's radio show is an executive production of Squish Talks. Find links to podcasts of this and previous shows via our Instagram and Facebook profiles at Live's Radio Show. Join me next week for more conversation, community, and the people that bring community to life. Music